Good morning, church. Our reading today is going to be from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. I'll be reading from the Life Application Bible. Once again, our reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. (laughs) They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should speak or ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. May God bless the reading of this word, and thank you for allowing me to to read this. Well, Cindy... I sure set you up on that one, didn't I? <laughs> Hopefully we got your, your interest. Um, we had two women singing, by the way, beautiful. Uh, Laura and Allie, mother and daughter. How beautiful that mother and daughter uh, singing the testimony of the Lord together in the church. And Roger, Allie's dad, said this is the first time she's ever sung in public. And he told me she was going to sing for the first time, and I said, well, is she any good? <laughs> I, wasn't sure whether, I wasn't sure why she hadn't sung, but yeah, so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a testimony. Okay, you clap for the scripture reading, you clap for them. I'm wondering if you're going to clap when the sermon's over. Let's wait. <laughs> Time will tell. Uh, let's pray. Lord, you are the dispenser of truth. You actually are truth. Whatever is true is part of your character. That is your character. We worship you as truth. And Lord, we come here to know truth, not just information, but to know you, a person who is truth. I would humbly ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit so that you might do a miraculous work and convey your truth through my words into every heart that's here for the glory of Christ. Lord, for those who aren't here today, we ask you to minister to them. When they open their Bible, when they pray, when they listen to this sermon or other sermons online, if they're deployed, Lord, may you encourage them and strengthen them and speak to them truth. Bring them back safely to us. If they're in the hospital or homesick, we pray that you'd minister health to them along with ministering truth. For our students who are away, Lord, we especially pray that they would not become prey of the world and believe lies, but they would hold on to the truth. Lord, we are saddened when we hear of people who are deceived, perhaps even demon-possessed, who go into places of worship and create destruction. And Lord, we lift up the synagogue in Pittsburgh and the loss of life there that was horrendous. And we just pray for those family members and loved ones. And Lord, we do pray for the protection of your people around the world as they worship you, especially our brothers and sisters in very dangerous situations who still choose to worship you. Minister to them, Lord, we pray. And Lord, as we come to your word now, we open our hearts, we open our ears and ask you to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Josh, would you mind running back, grabbing some outlines? 
Um, Pastor Josh is going to grab some outlines, and uh, if you didn't get a sermon outline and would like one, if you just lift your hand when you see him come forward, uh, that way you can have one. Because I'm going to start off with a quiz. You don't need the outline for the quiz, but it'll make it easier to follow the sermon. But we're going to start with a, a Bible quiz today. I don't want you to be nervous. You don't have to speak out loud. You don't have to write anything. In fact, I don't want you to speak out loud. And um, so if you need a, a sermon outline, just raise your hand. Pastor Josh will give you one. Thank you. But it's a one-question sermon quiz, okay? And I don't want you to speak out the answer. Keep it yourself. Okay, you ready? Doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, okay, in what city? In what city? And if you don't know the city, we'll settle for country. Make it easier. In what city or what country is the original copy of the Bible presently being kept in a climate-controlled, secured vault. What city, and if you don't know the city, what country, is the original Bible presently being kept in a climate-controlled, secured vault? Don't speak your answer. Just keep it firmly in your mind. Okay, ready for the answer? Here it is. There is no such book. There is no such book. There is no such book, and there never has been. You're going, wait a minute, what? Let me explain. And as I do so, I want you to understand that today's sermon has to go deep, but it's not especially long. (laughs) But it's deep. You're going to learn some things that maybe you didn't know before. Look in the outline, number one thing there that is an important background information for you. The first important background information is the Bible, as you know it, as you have it before you, was written over a period of 40 generations. It took 40 generations to write what you have. That's about 1,600 years by at least 40 authors. 40 different people over a period of 40 generations. Sometimes we have this idea that, you know, the Bible is just like downloaded to a couple people and they wrote the whole thing. Well, that's not the case. Over 1,600 years, 40 different authors, and it was written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. The New Testament, of course, was written in Greek, the common language of the people of that day. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and a few portions of the Old Testament are in Aramaic, some places in Daniel, in Ezra, and some words, of course, in the New Testament are Aramaic, which is related to Hebrew, but it's not the same language. So if your Bible was written over a period of 40 generations by at least 40 authors in three different languages that very few people in this room actually can read any of them, but a few of us can, How did you get that nice leather-bound Bible that you're holding or that you left at home or that your grandmother has if you don't have it because you have a smartphone and it's there? Where did that come from? I'm going to tell you. And to put it briefly, using a word that you're probably, some words that you're probably unfamiliar with, here's how you got it. Textual criticism. Woohoo! That's like saying calculus. You know, it's just our endoplasmic reticulum. You know, it's just... It doesn't really make you all that excited, (laughs) but that's the answer. Well, how does textual criticism relate to the passage that most pastors would want to skip today, going through 1 Corinthians, our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that was read earlier that says, and I quote, 
let the women keep silent in the churches. How does textual criticism relate to that passage? Well, you're about to find out. But let's first look at some more important background information. Number two on your outline. Textual criticism is the method used to determine what the original, the original manuscripts of the Bible said. The original manuscripts of the Bible said. To date, we have approximately 6,000 early Greek manuscripts of portions of the New Testament. 6,000. And we have approximately 24,000 manuscripts, old manuscripts, of the New Testament in other languages, such as Latin and Coptic and Ethiopian and, and Syriac and, and um, Armenian. So we have all these documents, and some of the oldest ones are estimated to be within 30, maybe 50 years of the original writings. There is no other historical document that even comes close to this level of documentation. And textual criticism is the science, it's a science of gathering all these thousands of manuscripts in different languages and looking at all of them. And of course, there are some differences and the variations and the differences are called variants. And variants come up because, well, sometimes scribes mishear a word. They would sit, a group of scribes sometimes, and the scriptures would be read orally, and they would write what they heard. And they would write a homonym, a word that sounds like the word that's supposed to be there, but it's the right word. It's the wrong word. And they, they put the wrong word down. And so you can see that with textual variant. You can see, oh, that scribe misheard the word because it sounds like that one, but it's the wrong word. It doesn't fit. Or they might misspell something. Or they might write something twice. They sometimes would have some explanatory insertions. You have a study Bible. You have things written in your margin. Well, sometimes a scribe would say, well, this isn't very clear. I'll just write my comments in the side. And then another scribe would see the comments on the side and go, oh, he left that out. And then he would write it and he'd put it in. Well, textual criticism is the science of looking at all these documents and all the variations, and they follow certain guidelines to discover what the original must look like because we don't have any of the original documents of the Bible. We have none, zero, nada, none of them. Textual criticism is the method used to determine what the original manuscripts of the Bible said and there are tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of variants, of differences. And you go, well, that sounds like a lot. Well, compared to the number of words and letters, it only makes up 0.5% of your Bible. In other words, looking at number three in your outline there, your Bible has been copied with 99.5% accuracy. 99.5% accuracy. And of that 0.5% of variance, none of them have anything to do with an essential Christian doctrine. There are things like a misspelling or something said twice. Or maybe a commentary that's been added that's true, but it wasn't part of the original. 
because God, who communicated truth to us through the Scriptures, has watched over, has superintended the copying and the preservation of His Word so that we could have it accurately. Humans are still involved, and so there can be mistakes, but none of them affect the truth, the veracity of what God is teaching. Before I give you some examples that are in your Bible of these variants, I want to emphasize these variants in no way undermine what is called the inerrancy of Scripture. Inerrancy is a word that means without error. The original writings of the Bible were completely without error. No error in terms of science, no error in terms of history, no error in terms of philosophical thoughts or theology, no errors whatsoever. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit carried men along as they wrote the Scriptures, so they wrote using their personalities, their language, their grammar, their education, God's words without error. Look at two verses with me. The first one is 2 Peter. Your outline says 1 Peter. That's a variant. (laughs) It's a copyist error. (laughs) It was my fault. 2 Peter is what we want. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19, 2 Peter. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Prophetic word, God's word. The word that he gave through prophets, spoke truth. It can be written... It can be spoken. It's made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We live in a really dark world right now. You need to be paying attention to the prophetic word. That's the light that shows you how to live. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Christ is coming back. But now this first of all, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. You can't just say what you think it means. It's what God means it to mean, not what you mean it to mean. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Men didn't say, oh, I think I'll write the Bible today. It didn't work that way. But men moved. That Greek word is carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit when we have God's prophetic word. Look at 2 Timothy, to the left of where you are in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You might have memorized this in Awana or Sunday school. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. Inspired means breathed out. God breathed out the Scripture, and God doesn't make mistakes. It's impossible for God to err. So the original writings of the Scripture were inerrant, were without error. But we don't have the originals. We have copies that have been copied over and over again. But the science of textual criticism completely disproves that fallacious statement that your non-Christian or carnal Christian friend could make that they say we can't trust the Bible because it's been copied over and over again after so many years, kind of like playing telephone with your friends, where, you know, I tell Bob something, and Bob tells Susie, and Susie tells Frank, and Frank tells Linda, and it goes like that. And they go, it all gets morphed around. 
Well, that's not how the copies were done. I tell Bob, and Bob tells three people. Then I tell Linda, and Linda tells four people. And then I tell Frank, and he tells me. And then I tell, that's how it was copied. They start with this one, and so then all these other people that heard from Bob and Linda and Susie and Frank, whoever, you can compare what they heard, and you go, oh, we, we kind of know what the original said. It wasn't like we went from one, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. They're copying from the same thing a lot of times. Now, that's why the copies that we have are 99.5% accurate. But I want to show you some of that 0.5, some of those textual variants. So number four, some textual variants. The word is spelled V-A-R-I-A-N-T-S. Variants include... Turn to the last chapter of the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the very ending of Mark. It's called the long ending of Mark. Maybe you never noticed this before. It's a textual variant. Mark 16, verse 9. If you have any kind of Bible, it probably will have a mark there, a marginal note, a bracket, a star. I don't know how it works on your telephones, but on verse 9, it's, it has a note there. And mine says, some of the oldest manuscripts omit from verses 9 through 20. That's the long end of Mark. It's a disputed passage. It's a variation. We don't know if that was in the original Bible or not. We don't know if Mark wrote that or not. It's a variant. It's not in all the Greek manuscripts. Some of the oldest ones don't have it. And look at verse 18. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not harm them. Well, before you claim that verse and pick up poisonous serpents and pick up drinking poison, you want to make sure if that's really the Word of God or not. And that is a textual variant. Let me show you another one. The next one is probably one of the best-known stories in the New Testament by both Christian and non-Christian. Perhaps one of the best love stories, and we're not even sure that it's part of the Scripture. It's found in John 7, the very last verse of John 7, which is verse 53, all the way to chapter 8, verse 11. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus has this lady brought to him, and he looks at the crowd and says, you without Sin, cast the first stone, and we know the story. They all disperse, and Jesus says, I forgive you, and she goes, she feels love, and it's a beautiful story. What I like about the story is Jesus reaches down and writing something with his finger in the dirt. There are only two places in Scripture where it talks about God, you know, writing. Well, maybe three, I guess. One is when he wrote the Ten Commandments. The other one is Daniel, the hand writing on the wall, and then this writing in the dirt And we don't know what he wrote, but I have a hunch that he's got a crowd of people there, and according to Jewish tradition, you couldn't throw a stone if he'd committed the same sin as the other person. You couldn't throw the stone. I'm thinking he's looking at the crowd, and he's writing their names and the people they'd committed sexual sin with. (laughs) And they're going, woo! (laughs) Because he knows all. And then he goes, those without sin cast the first stone. He's writing their names down. (laughs) And pretty soon the whole crowd's gone. It's a beautiful story. But it's a variant. Look at what it says in John 7, 53. 
There's a note there. In my margin, says John 7, 53, 8 to 11, is not found in most, most of the old manuscripts. The majority of old Greek manuscripts don't contain this story. It's a beautiful story. It could be true. Possibly happened exactly like that. And a scribe said, hey, this story is a great story, and I remember it, and I want to put it in. And he wrote it and put it in. We don't know. But textual criticism says that probably isn't part of the original, but we're not sure, so you have it in your Bible. You have other stories that are not in the Bible because textual criticism said there's no way that's part of the original. It's a variant. Here's another variant. In John chapter 5, remember the story of the man who's a paralytic? He's by the pool of Bethesda. He, he can't get into the pool, and you know when it's stirred, he gets in there, you get healed. Was, he's been laying there for 38 years, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus heals him. Well, notice John 5, verse 4. In my Bible, verse 4 isn't even there. It says, see marginal note. There's no verse 4. And the marginal note says, many authorities insert wholly or in part this phrase, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first after the stirring up of the water stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Not part of the original. It was a commentary, apparently, that some scribe put in the margin so you'd understand what happened with water. Otherwise, you wouldn't understand that an angel was coming down and stirring up the water. So he goes, well, people aren't going to understand this. And textual criticism, one of the rules that they follow is that a copyist is more likely to add something than to delete something. I mean, what copyist is going to leave that whole thing out? Oh, he, he might leave a, a little portion of a letter or something like that, but to leave out a whole thing like that, probably not. He's more likely to add something in way of explanation. And so, according to textual criticism, the longer reading is usually considered the less reliable reading. Less reliable. Because it's, things have been added to explain what's in the text. Now, this brings us to today's text in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. Regardless of your view concerning women speaking in church, regardless of your view, regardless of where you went to seminary or Bible school or what church or denomination you're part of, these two verses have significant issues in themselves. And the first important observation of our text, number one there on your outline, is these verses are a textual variant. They are a textual variant. Although they are found in all known Greek manuscripts, they're found in all of them, they're not all found in the same place. The verses move around. Some of them are found exactly where you might have them in your Bible after verse 33, but some manuscripts have them after verse 40. And the best explanation on why a section of verses would move around is they got inserted, and people go, well, that doesn't fit there. I think it should go over here. No, it doesn't fit there. I want it over here. It doesn't make much sense that a copyist copying the original would say, well, I don't like where, where this was written. I'm going to put it somewhere else. It doesn't make any sense. So... Regardless of your view, these verses are a textual variant. There's a red flag that says, huh, there's an issue with these verses. The second thing that we discover 
Number two, these verses contradict what is said in 1 Corinthians 11.5. They contradict what is said in 1 Corinthians 11.5. This is not my opinion. This is fact. I went to a school that said that women couldn't preach in, in public, couldn't speak in the church, and they agreed that this passage contradicted 1 Corinthians 11.5. They tried to explain why there was a contradiction. Well, God doesn't contradict himself. You're going, I don't really remember 1 Corinthians 11.5. It's been a while since you preached on it. Well, let me read that verse to you. Paul's speaking about what's going on in the church. In 1 Corinthians 11.5 says, Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. He's talking about the church service. She's getting up to pray. Probably in this context means praying in tongues publicly. And then there'd be an interpretation. Or she's prophesying. She's foretelling or forthtelling for God, speaking for God. And he doesn't say she shouldn't do that. He just says she should do it modestly. We looked at that chapter already. She's not prohibited from speaking. She is told how to dress when she speaks in public. And so is the man, by the way. Well, if a woman isn't supposed to speak in church, and it's shameful if she does, that contradicts 1 Corinthians 11.5. I mean, did, did Paul change his mind while he's writing? doesn't make any sense. It's a contradiction. That's not my opinion. That's a stated fact. Number three, these verses lack relevance to the theme of the chapter. They lack relevance to the theme of the chapter. If you were here last week or if you listened to the message online, you know that the theme of the chapter 14 has to do with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of tongues and prophecy for the purpose of edification of the church. The whole chapter is about tongues, prophecy, tongues, prophecy, tongues, prophecy, women, tongues, prophecy. It it doesn't fit. One commentator says it's like a rock dropped in the middle of the argument. You go, yeah, well, it says something about silence of prophets and silence of tongue speakers, and it says something about silence of women. Yeah, that's why the person tried to slip it in, as if you wouldn't notice that it totally doesn't fit the theme of the chapter. It has nothing to do with spiritual gifting. It has nothing to do with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to do with the edification of the church. It just got slipped in because the writer, the scribe who was copying this, I guess he didn't want women talking in church because... He came from a very male-dominated culture of that day. These verses lack relevance to the theme of the chapter. So we looked at three things. These verses are a textual variant, not my opinion. These verses contradict what is said in 1 Corinthians 11.5, not my opinion, fact. Number three, these verses lack relevance to the theme of the chapter, not my opinion, that's fact. But there's more. Look at verse 34. 1 Corinthians 14, let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves. And then he says, just as the law also says. That's a reference to the Old Testament law. Well, number four in your outline, when the Apostle Paul appeals to the law, he quotes it. He quotes it. He tells you what law he's referring to, but that doesn't happen here. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, where Paul refers to the Old Testament law, and then he quotes it. 1 Corinthians 9, 8, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? 
Or does not the law, the Old Testament law, also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, and now he quotes it. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Quotes it. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, the very chapter we're in, verse 21. Again, he refers to the law, verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 14. In the law it is written, and now he quotes it. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to the people, and even so they will not listen to me. But then we come down to this controversial verse in verse 34. He says, as the law also says, and he doesn't quote it. When Paul uses the law, he quotes it. So why isn't the law quoted here? Well, there's a good reason. That's number five. The law doesn't say this anywhere. The law doesn't say it. Even people who like these verses, who think they're authentic, can't find a verse in the Old Testament that says this. They scramble around and say, oh, maybe this verse refers to, you know, because Eve was created second and that's kind of like. Well, the, the law doesn't say this anywhere. Those are five good reasons to reject these two verses as part of the original text. And those are all facts. They're not opinions. But, of course, not all Bible scholars agree with the view that these verses are not authentic. But listen to me. Now, this is maybe opinion. To make a decision that more than 50% of the church is not allowed to speak about Jesus in the church based on two controversial verses seems foolish at best and demonic at worst. I mean, think about it. Ho, women, don't talk about Jesus in church. Wait till you go outside. Does that make sense to anybody? And then, what's church? We think this is church. Church is going on right over there where most of the people speaking are women. Hmm. Why would we want to silent them? Here's number six. If these verses are authentic, then why don't we actually follow them? There's no church that follows these verses. I don't think there's a one. If these verses are authentic, then why don't we actually follow them? The people who try to get around this, they go, oh, well, she's not allowed to, uh, we can't learn anything from her. Okay, that's good. So if you have a missionary speaker and, you know, she's been serving 50 years in a remote area and she's led whole tribes to Jesus Christ, she's translated the Bible into their language and she comes here, she can share. But by God, don't learn anything. You can sing God's Word, but you can't preach it. You can read God's Word, but don't give your opinion. That doesn't make sense to me. Those of you who know me and those who don't now know me, I don't do well with foolish things that don't make sense. I don't care what someone else says I should believe. I'm not going to believe it if it's illogical, if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't work, and if you're not consistent with what you say you believe. That's my opinion. I think women not only can come up here and give announcements of a women's retreat, that's speaking in church, I think they can not only sing beautiful duets together, 
I think they can not only read the Scripture, I think they can get up here and tell us what God says that Scripture means if they're filled with the Holy Spirit when they do it. I don't think we're free to pick and choose how we want to apply Scripture because we like it or don't like it. So if these verses are not authentic, then they are not God's instructions for the church. So does that mean, Pastor, that you're saying women are free to be elders? Women are free to be pastors of a church? No, I haven't said that yet. It's not in the text. I'm just telling you what's in this text. (laughs) When you develop your opinions about things, you want to make sure they're based on the truth of the text. I'd encourage you, if you want to know more about this, to flip over your outline this week. There are some study questions on the back, and some of those go into some of the other verses that have to do with women teaching men. But we're going to close for today there. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and still listen while your heads are bowed, if you would. Let's pray together. Although we've talked about an important issue, there's a more important issue here today for you if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Everyone in this room is going to die unless Jesus returns and takes you to heaven without death. But people die. You die. I die. The question isn't whether we'll die. The question is where we go when we die. Jesus offers you heaven, a perfect place forever in a perfect body, completely forgiven filled with joy forever, with no heartache, no sorrow, no grief, no pain, no tears. He offers that to you and wants to know if you're willing to receive it by believing that he died for, his, for your sins on the cross, that he rose from the grave and conquered death, and he's willing to forgive you. You might know that, but knowing it doesn't save you, you must embrace it. Have you ever asked Jesus Christ to come into your life? If you haven't and would like to, just cry out to him now and say, Lord, please save me. I believe what you've done for me, and I'm grateful. Lord, we all want to speak for you. We all want to lift up your name. Help us to do that well, both in the church and outside the church, for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask both men and women to stand (laughs) and to raise their voices in praise to our Lord. I'm going to close our service with the benediction from Numbers chapter 6, 24 through verse 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Sunday. We love you guys. See you soon.